Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. Hope you're well. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode two of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is Seljuks and Ottomans. In the last episode we heard about the decline of the Byzantine Empire in the later Middle Ages so that by the 1440s it really was nothing more than a city-state in my opinion with Constantinople of course as its main city. It's also worth remembering that there were a couple of other little Byzantine city-states quite separate from Constantinople in the form of Trebizond on the Black Sea coast and Mistra on the Greek mainland in the Peloponnese. Trebizond in particular has an interesting history because it had successfully beaten off the Turks since the 11th century. They had first captured it after the Battle of Manticurt in 1071, but then a very daring Byzantine nobleman called Theodore Gabras recaptured it in 1075 and founded a dynasty that lasted in fact after the fall of Constantinople itself, since Trebizond was in fact the last Byzantine outpost to fall to the Turks in 1460. And I've actually written a novel many years ago about Theodore Gabras in a book called Trebizond, if you want to look it up on Amazon. But I don't think it's a particularly good novel, since, to be honest, I don't think I'm a very gifted fiction writer. And if you're thinking of buying any books related to this podcast, I'd recommend instead my history book called The Byzantine World War, which is still on Amazon at a discounted price of 99 cents or pence if you want to look it up. So enough of Trebizond and back to the main subject of the podcast, which is the fall of Constantinople. And in the last episode, we heard about the decay of the Byzantine Empire. So in this episode, we're going to turn to the Ottoman Turks and how they replaced the Seljuks in Anatolia and then started to do something the Seljuks had never managed to do, which was to cross the Bosphorus and invade Europe. As before, I'll read from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. The decline of Byzantium towards the end of the 12th century and the disaster of the Fourth Crusade in 1204 enabled the Seljuk Turks to increase their territory. In the first half of the 13th century, the Seljuk sultans of Rum, as they were usually called after their possessions in the heart of old Roman and Byzantine lands, were respected and powerful figures in the Muslim world. They'd established their authority over the Ghazi princes. They were usually on good terms with their Byzantine neighbours, the emperors of Nicaea. They had abandoned their eastern ambitions and were content to administer their orderly and tolerant state from their capital at Konya. They revived urban life and repaired communications. They encouraged the arts and learning. It is a tribute to their wise and able government that the transition of Anatolia from a mainly Christian to a mainly Muslim country was achieved so smoothly that no one indeed troubled to record the details. But the benign rule of the Seljuks was ended by the Mongol invasions. First, a number of Turkish tribes fleeing before the Mongol armies 
entered Asia Minor. They were settled on the western frontier where they joined the Ghazis, who were fretting under Seljuk control. In 1243, the Mongols themselves appeared. The Seljuk Sultan suffered an overwhelming defeat from which his kingdom never recovered. Henceforward, he and his successors were the tributaries and vassals of the Mongol Ilkhan of Persia, and their power and authority decayed. In less than a century, the Seljuk dynasty was extinct. The decline of the Seljuk Sultanate gradually freed the Ghazi princes of the frontier from restraint. More and more refugees from Mongol rule joined them, officials from Seljuk cities, country folk from devastated or overtaxed areas, holy men, sheikhs and dervishes, many of whom were considered heretical in strict Muslim circles, but whose fanaticism fitted in with the frontier spirit. Pressure and faith alike urged them on to attack the Christians. But it was not easy at first. The Byzantine Nicene emperors had taken great care of the frontier, reviving the Byzantine warlords on the frontier called the Akritai, but keeping them under control. But the recovery of Constantinople in 1261, glorious though it was, had its disadvantages. The Byzantine Empire was henceforward deeply involved in Europe, facing threats not only from the Balkan powers, but from Westerners eager to avenge the fall of the Latin Empire of Constantinople. Byzantine troops were withdrawn from the Asiatic garrisons. Economies in the navy weakened the coastal defences. Taxation rose all over the Byzantine Empire to pay for its new commitments. The Akritai found themselves ill-supported and ill-paid. During the last three decades of the 13th century, several Ghazis penetrated across the frontier. Overcrowded on their side of the border, eager for booty and spurred on by their religious leaders, they and their followers poured into the remaining lands of Byzantine Asia. Fitful attempts by the Byzantine army to drive them back were unsuccessful. Some of the more enterprising of them, such as the Muslim princes of Menteshe and Aydin attacked by sea as well as by land, and the Byzantine navy was too feeble to prevent them from occupying several islands as well as the western Anatolian coastlands. By the year 1300, all that remained to Byzantium in Asia, apart from one or two isolated cities, were the plains between Bithynian Olympus and the Sea of Marmora, the peninsula that juts out to the Bosphorus, as far inland as the river Sangarius and the Black Sea coastline for a few hundred miles eastward. In these movements, the Emirate of Menteshe in the southwest of Asia Minor had first taken the lead, but its power was curtailed when the Knights Hospitaller captured and established themselves in the island of Rhodes. Power then passed to the Emirs of Aydin, the first of the Asiatic Turks to raid the European coasts of the Aegean. It took the combined might of Venice, Cyprus and the Hospitallers to restrain them. Further north were the princes of Sarakan with their headquarters at Manisa or Magnesia, recently the second capital of the Nicene emperors, and next to them the Karazi princes settled on the plain of Troy. On the Black Sea coast there was Ghazi Chelebi's emirate at Sinope, famous for its piratical exploits. There were several smaller emirates in the interior, and there were the two great emirates of Karaman and Jamian, both seeing themselves as the heirs of the 
the Seljuks, and both determined to set up an orderly state with the Ghazi elements under their control. The Karaman princes who occupied Konya in 1327 were far enough from the frontier to be able to eliminate the local Ghazis. The Jamian princes, whose capital was Kutaya, refused to bear the title of Ghazi, but tried to establish some authority over the neighbouring Ghazi lords, many of whom were in origin Jemayan military leaders. They were in the main successful, with one exception, the emirates along the Aegean coast and the Byzantine frontier treated them with deference and respect, while never actually admitting their rule. The one exception was a small state established during the second half of the 13th century in the borderland stretching eastward from Bithynian Olympus. Its founder was a certain Etugrul, who died in 1281 and was succeeded by his son Osman. The origins of the Osmanli, or Ottoman, family, as Osman's descendants were called, have been twisted and ornamented by legends created after the family had become great. We are given a list of 21 ancestors going back to Noah, though 31 more were later added to make the chronology more convincing. The line passes through the eponymous hero Oguz Khan, founder of the Oguz Turks, and through his son Gok Alp and his grandson Chamunda, who is the same as Chavulda, according to other legends, one of the 24 grandsons of Oguz, from whom the 24 principal Oguz tribes were descended. But though there was a Chowder tribe which was absorbed into the Ottoman polity in the late 13th century, it was a distinct tribe, hostile at first to Osman's leadership. Another legend enhanced the family by giving it Oguz's eldest grandson, Kai, son of Gun Khan as its ancestor, thus making the Ottomans a branch of the senior Oghuz tribe. But this tradition only appears in the 15th century after the alternative tradition of the descent from Gok Alp had been generally accepted. Court flatterers in the 15th century complicated the issue by giving the dynasty Arab ancestors, though it never claimed descendants from the Prophet himself. The pedigrees of his descendants were only too well known. The conquering Sultan Mehmet II sought to impress both his Turkish and his Greek subjects by supporting a theory that his family was descended from a prince of the imperial Byzantine house of Komnenus, who migrated to Konya and there became a convert to Islam and the husband of a Seljuk princess. But there is no sound evidence to support any of these theories. The prudent historian will conclude that Etugrul was not a tribal leader but an able Ghazi commander of unknown origin who somehow made his way to the frontier and there, by his prowess, gathered around him a sufficient number of followers to enable him to found an emirate. His main asset was the geographical position of the lands that he occupied. A Ghazi community, to justify its existence, had to raid and to advance into infidel territory, but by the end of the 13th century, nearly all the Ghazi emirs had reached the limits of 
of Asia Minor, the Byzantines had gone, and the sea blocked further progress, though enterprising pirates such as the emirs of Aydin and Sinope might profitably raid enemy coasts, none of them had enough sea power to contemplate the transport of sufficient of their people to establish colonies overseas. Apart from the emirates that bordered on the empire of Trebizond away to the east, only the territory which Osman had inherited still faced an infidel frontier. It was into Osman's lands that the most enterprising elements among the Turks now poured. Ghazi leaders eager to find rich lands that still could be raided, dervishes and scholars eager to escape from the hated Mongols, and a solid mass of peasant tribesmen still looking for homes in which to settle with their flocks. Osman thus found himself with human resources quite out of proportion to his small emirate. Had Osman not been a leader of genius, he might have been swamped by the immigrants. We know little of how he dealt with them. It is significant that in the oldest surviving inscription in which an Ottoman ruler gives himself the title of Sultan, an inscription placed by Osman's son, Orhan, on a mosque in Bruza, the reading runs, Sultan, son of the Sultan of the Ghazis, Ghazi, son of Ghazis, Margrave of the Horizons, hero of the world. It was therefore as a supreme Ghazi leader that Osman established his authority. Ghazi meaning a Muslim warrior intent on religious war, while other Ghazi emirs, unable to expand along the only lines that they knew, began to quarrel with each other. Osman offered a Ghazi life to anyone who accepted his command. The Byzantine Empire could not ignore the challenge. Perhaps its wisest course would have been quickly to evacuate its armies out of Anatolia, concentrating its strength on naval forces strong enough to prevent any crossing of the straits into Europe. Then, when Osman found his expansion blocked by the sea, his emirate too might have declined and his followers have dispersed in search of other fields. But such foresight and self-restraint were not to be expected. Osman's importance was not at first realised at Constantinople. It was against the Turks of Aydin and Manissa that the Byzantine armies were sent with no success during the last decades of the 13th century. It was only when Osman defeated a Byzantine force at Bethaeum between Nicaea and Nicomedia in 1301 and began to settle his people north of Mount Olympus that serious attention was paid to him. The Byzantines could not tamely permit Muslim occupation of their last Asiatic possessions, lands that were in indeed in sight of the capital itself, but their opposition was ill-organised and ineffectual. In 1305, the Catalan company, which the Emperor Andronicus II had hired as mercenaries, defeated Osman near Luque, but the Catalans soon revolted against the Emperor and involved the Byzantine Empire in ten years of civil war. During those years, not only did numbers of Turkish troops hired either by the Byzantine Emperor or by the Catalans move to and fro across the Dardanelles, but Osman was able to consolidate his hold on the countryside as far as the Sea of Marmora. During the next few years, he took possession of the Byzantine towns along the Black Sea coast from Inebelu to the Sangarius. The departure of the Catalans was followed in Byzantium by dynastic civil wars. Again, Osman was left with little opposition to face. His armies consisted mainly of cavalry and he had no siege engines. In order to capture fortified cities, 
He would sweep through the surrounding countryside, driving out or enslaving the local peasants and settling his own followers there. The city would thus be cut off from its sources of supply and unless a relieving army cut its way through, would be starved into surrender. He now concentrated on the city of Brusa, set on the northern slopes of the Olympus mountain range. But its fortifications and the richness of the countryside below its walls enabled it to defy him for ten years. The Byzantine emperor could send no relief, and in the autumn of 1326 it was starved into capitulation. When the news reached Osman, he was a dying man, and he died a few days later that November. By the brilliant use of his opportunities, he turned a small border emirate into the chief power among the Turks and the spearhead of the Ghazi movement into Christendom. Osman was also fortunate in his children. His elder son, Orhan, succeeded to the throne. It was said that as Turkish tradition demanded, he offered to share the rule with his brother, Allah Eddin, but Allah Eddin generously insisted that the monarchy should not be divided and remained a loyal subject. Orhan inherited also an able minister whose name was likewise Allah Eddin. It is not easy to know whether it was to the ruler or to the minister that the remarkable development of the Ottoman state was due. Like his father, Orhan was a Ghazi leader, pledged to conquer the infidel. In 1329, the historic city of Nicaea, which, like Brusa, had been isolated for many years, surrendered to him. The Byzantine emperor Andronicus III and his minister John Cantacuzenos had attempted to relieve it, but after an indecisive battle, discontent among their troops and bad news from Europe forced them to retire. Orhan's next objective was the great seaport of Nicomedia. It resisted him for nine years, receiving supplies and reinforcements by sea. But when he managed to blockade the narrow gulf on which it stood, it was forced to surrender in 1337. With Nicomedia in his hands, the Sultan, as he now called himself, was able to occupy all the country almost up to the Bosphorus itself. By now, Byzantium was being harassed by the great Serbian Empire of Stephen Dushan, while in 1341, civil war broke out between John Cantacuzenos and the regents governing in the name of the child, Emperor John V. For some time past, Byzantine generals had hired the services of Turkish troops from various tribes in spite of the Turks' incorrigible habit of pillaging the lands through which they passed. Orhan's men were the most effective and the best disciplined. So while John V's supporters engaged mercenaries from Menisa and Aydin, John Cantacuzenos Zanos won Orhan's support in 1344 by giving him his daughter Theodora in marriage. In return, the Sultan sent 6,000 men to fight in Thrace. After Cantacuzenos had won the throne, he still called on Ottoman troops to help him in his wars against the Serbs. When the campaigns were over, many of these Turks seemed to have settled in Thrace. John Cantacuzenos's fall from power in 1355 gave Orhan the excuse that he wanted to invade Europe on his own behalf. In 1356, an army under his son Suleiman was ferried across the Dardanelles. Within a year, his troops had captured Chorlu and Didymoticum and pressed inland to occupy Adrianople. As with his Asiatic conquest, the Sultan encouraged Turkish tribesmen to follow the Ghazi leaders and at once to settle in the countryside that they conquered. When Orhan died, probably in 1362, the Turks were masters of western Thrace. The Sultan had also encouraged 
increased his territory in Asia, less by warfare than by the eagerness of other Turks to join so successful a Ghazi state. The Jumayan power was declining and he was able to establish his rule in Eskisehir and Ankara. His chief foe in Asia was the Emirate of Aydin, which blocked him to the southwest. But the Ottomans were now firmly established as the dominant power in the region and Byzantium was only a shadow of its former self. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend or to leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll continue with the story of the rise to power of the Ottoman Turks. See you then. (laughs) 